Thanks, Carl, for that. How are the concentration levels going? Is your, is your Sunday anything like this, where uh, a mother wakes up and goes to her son's bedroom and says, son, get up, it's time for church. He says, I'm not going. He said, oh, why not? He says, for, for two reasons. They don't like me and I don't like them. And she says, well, I've got two reasons for you to go. And the first one is, you're 47 years of age and you're the pastor. (laughs) I think by your laughter it's true, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, it's time for, um, for Dave to come back up. I've got this book in my hand, which I was given by Dave two years ago. Uh, at I can't remember, it was Stanwell Tops wasn't it Dave and I took the opportunity to read it from uh, Sydney back to Melbourne and uh, and I read pretty much all of it and I had to be asked by the um, flight attendant uh, you can disembark now because <laughs> I was so engrossed in it it's a great read and, um, and I think it's time now just to unpack it a little bit Dave, uh, like I said uh, earlier, I was at the conference in 2011. It was the um, In the Shoot conference, which is a church planting conference. And um, Dave, I remember, preached there. You preached there. And I can't remember the sermon, Dave. I can't either. Uh, <laughs> but what I can remember was uh, that you shared of your intentions of going to Darwin. You alluded to that earlier. And I was intrigued by that because here was Dave, you know, a pretty well-seasoned pastor at Crossroads in Canberra and prepared to pull up stumps and just go to Darwin. He had done the research, the, um, the exploration, whatever it might have been, and he committed himself to it. And when I got home, and it wasn't long after I heard that Dave got sick, and I was just blown away by that. When was that day, Dave? Uh, 2nd of December 2011, um, I was uh, sitting in a coffee shop in North Canberra meeting up with uh, a bunch of guys who were involved in university ministry and started to feel um, things uh, going wrong with my body. My left arm was getting number and my left leg was getting numb. I already had a pain in my shoulder blades and my chest and I'd been breathless that particular conference we were at in Melbourne, the, the dining hall was up three flights of stairs and I, I'd just double over when I got to the top and I, I put it down just to being really unfit and the stress of packing up the house and all of that. And, but um, my, my friend who was, uh, he was actually trained as a doctor, he's working in Christian ministry now, um, he said, uh, look we need to get you straight to hospital, he thought I was having a heart attack and um, I think... Uh, they did all the testing, found my heart was fine, x-rayed, couldn't work it out, did a CT scan, found that I had three litres of fluid around my left lung and there was a dark mass on the edge of the lung. And um, shortly after that I discovered that I actually had lung cancer. And that was a, that was a huge shock because I, at that stage, and I, I suspect there's plenty of people in the world who would think this, I thought, OK, smokers get lung cancer. I wasn't a smoker. Uh, they were worried about mesothelioma as well, the asbestos uh, disease. Couldn't work out where I could have picked that up. Um, but you never know, of course, with airborne dust and so on. And, um, but it turns out that it's, it, it's a particular type of cancer uh, that is common to non-smokers. And around about 20% of lung cancers 
uh, is um, found in people who've never smoked uh, or who maybe smoked a little bit, but it's a long time ago and it's not the cause of their cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So you went through the tests <coughs> and um, they come up with a, a diagnosis. What was that? Yeah, they... Uh, um, got any medicos here? Yep. Yeah, I found out I've got non-small cell lung cancer. Um, my wife's a GP, so she, she was getting information from a friend who's um, a bit of a respiratory specialist, and um, they talked about the benefits of genetic testing, and so we pushed for that, and we found out that I've, I've got a particular genetic mutation, uh, which um, it's amazing they can even identify these things, but quite literally my second chromosome is flipped 180 degrees and fused with my fifth chromosome, and it's what they call an ALK mutation. And the simplest way I've heard it described is that it's like turning on a tap uh, for the water to flow through the hose, but, but that creates a channel that the cancer goes through. And um, so this lung, lung cancer forms, the tumour forms, and of course, uh, if you don't catch that, it, it can s- spread. And sadly, when my cancer was found, they discovered that it was uh, what they identified as stage four, um, which means that it's spread, metastasized into other organs, uh, and they said to me, look, there's no cure for that. Uh, all this, of course, I'm speaking very matter-of-factly now. I'm bawling my eyes out at the time. I'm devastated. Um, it's like I'd just been sentenced to death. I, I had four kids. Uh, I had what I thought was you know, direction from God to be planting a church. You know, all, all this stuff's going on, and all of a sudden I'm being told that I'd probably live 10 to 13 months. Mm. You write in your book that, um, that you say it's like a judge giving you a death sentence. Mm. But what do you exactly mean well, by that? Well, and I've heard this from other people as well, to be told that you have cancer and mm. all, all of the environment that surrounds the word cancer basically relates to death. Yeah. Uh, people die of this disease. Of course, people don't die of it as well. And one of the things I've come to discover is that many people die with cancer but not from cancer. And my grandfather had two forms of cancer but didn't die of cancer. My my father had been diagnosed with a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma six months before I was and is now in remission. Um, But but for me, it was just, it was ripping my world away and thinking about, you know, I'd love to see a grandchild, I'd love to see my second son married, I'd love to see my daughter finish school... Um, I'd love to walk her down the aisle. I'd love to, you know, watch my son play for the Wallabies. I'd love to, whatever it might be, you know. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, within three weeks I could barely get myself out of bed and walk to the toilet. Yeah, yeah, it's like my world was collapsing. Such was the impact Mm. on you. Mm. What about your family, Dave? Just share a little bit about that, how Fiona dealt with that. Yeah. kids... I know you shared a little bit about your son who bawled his eyes out, but just yeah. share a little bit more. Yeah, the, um, my, honestly, I thank God for my wife. Um, I'm not sure she thanks God for me because I cause her so many hassles, but there's, there's very few people that I would want to be with in a crisis more than her. She's been gifted by God, I think, to, to see clearly and act clearly. And she's been an enormous support. Um, but I am concerned that there's been a long, long-term impact on her that uh, is often unrecognised. The impact on carers uh, is just as significant, though different, to those who suffer. Yeah. 
Not only that, but she, she had been a patient, if you like, or a sufferer herself for the previous year and a bit because we had a massive um, four-wheel drive accident in the desert uh, of Western Australia 15 months before where she took the, the brunt of that and um, shattered her arm, has an artificial kind of shoulder and pinned arm and, and um, compound fractures to the finger and, and a lot of rehab. And, um, and she was driving and so she's, there, she's borne a lot of the, the kind of emotional impact of that and our 12-year-old who's now 17, he was literally thrown out of a rolling four-wheel drive and ended up 100 metres from the vehicle and we thought we'd lost him forever. And so we're, we're kind of recovering from all of that. We're moving house, we're moving ministry, we're, we're making big decisions with ageing parents and the impact. And like, uh, I, you know, sometimes they, they run these tests where you, you kind of identify a range of stress factors. I, I think we'd have kind of peaked well over the top uh, in that zone. Um, but she's, she's terrific. I, and she's actually enjoying getting back into um, ministry and the new church. Um, one of my kids uh, was in Sydney at uni and the rest were at home. I think he struggled the most um, because they're seeing me on a regular basis and there's a reassurance of seeing a person, particularly when they're diagnosed with a terminal disease. And not initially. I went, my trajectory started here. I went rapidly downhill for three weeks in hospital. My wife got to the point where she didn't think I was coming out. Mm. We drew up power of attorney, we drew up a will, we, I got a, a, a taxation accountant to come in and, and basically I just used every effort I could to, to explain everything to him uh, so that Fiona wouldn't be in the dark. Cause Get I your did, house in order. Yeah, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, a lot of people visited me because I think they were paying their last respects oh, in a way. Yeah, yeah. People travelled from a long distance. And so the, Matthew... In Sydney, and we're in Canberra, he got serious anxiety, physical symptoms. He would be, he'd be curled up in a ball in bed and all sorts of things. Um, and he's so the he, youngest? Matthew no, he was the second. second. So he's at university. And um, my oldest was married. He, I think his wife was a great support. My daughter, um, who at the time was 15, and my son, who's 13, they seemed amazing. We put them back into school, and they'd said all their goodbyes. So it was really strange that all of a sudden they're saying hello again. And I don't think we really got inside their heads to know how much they were processing. No through, yeah. Both of them have had, had deeply emotional periods in, in the time since. For my, for my daughter, it was reading that book and she bawled her eyes out. Yeah. Um, for my son, it was the anniversary to the day of my diagnosis uh, when he was sobbing in the shower. And he tuned into that, I think, and he was just scared. And I was still... Um, still had evidence of cancer. 18 months into it, I, I had a CT scan that showed that there was no evidence of the tumour on my lung anymore. Now, that doesn't equal remission. They use the language of NED, no evidence of disease. But in my case, I've got another acronym which I think is more accurate in terms of how to think about it and the way the, the medical people are treating me, and that is AAC, which is Assumed Active Cancer. Um, it's a little bit like guerrilla warfare, you know. They, they've, they've shot down the, the armed forces on the front line, they can see, yeah. but but who knows who's hiding behind what buildings? And the thing about cancer is it's a microscopic cell, and um, they identified it um, in other parts of my body, but the only measurable thing was the tumour. Um, so they knew that the, the the chemotherapy was working, which I'd been on for 
15 months or so to get that tumour down to not being visible. So likely indications are that it's also been destroying cancer in the lymph system, cancer in the pleural lining, cancer in other places, but no way of measuring that. And in my cancer, there are no kind of clear tumour markers or anything. So I'm flying blind. Yeah. yeah. I know when I'm sick, um, and I don't do sickness very well at all. Um, Man flu is pretty tough, isn't it? (laughs) Man flu is pretty tough. Yeah. But what happens when I'm sick? For example, if I'm two or three days in bed because I've got the flu, and my prayer, my prayer life wanes. It just does. And I don't know why. How was that with you? Yeah, I, 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 I'd say I struggle, like all of us, um, to, to focus on the things of God. So um, the distraction of being physically unable to do things also probably impacts um, how I'm thinking, reading, praying and so forth. But the flip side of that is... I think that it's also enhanced my relationship with God and it's caused me to be more dependent upon him in prayer and to find comfort and strength uh, in his word. Mm. It's not a constant thing. It's a, it's a kind of um, up and down. But my wife and I were drawn very closely together in the period after hospital uh, where I was not able to do much at all um, and one of the things that we did each day was we slowly read through the book of 2 Corinthians together, which is a wonderful book for somebody in a chronic illness situation, Paul talking about how God works through his weakness. And I could identify in a different way to to that. um, But we... I'm I'm a, as you know, a selfish, proud person and I've had to be brought back to the need for my dependence upon God again and again as I've started to grow in my physical capacity uh, to do more. So you wrestled with God over the deeper questions of life? I did, I did. I, um, well, um, I, I think the impact on, my, on, the impact on me is not simply physical. Um, we're not simply physical beings, and you know that, don't you? you? You get a difficult day with your boss at work and you come home and you've got a headache. It's not that he hit you in the head. It, it, it's that you know, relational things and psychological things can have physical impacts. You're, you're tense. You, know, you get goosebumps. You, you get knots in your stomach. And you think about the impact of like, cancer and surgery and all of this stuff. And, and um, my body was in shutdown mode. I, I, I couldn't... Um, I, I went from... I was 92 kilos when I went into hospital. I came out just before Christmas three and a bit weeks later at 77 to 78. Um, I'll just put it fairly bluntly. I was so dangerously constipated that I vomited regularly because nothing would get through me. I, um, I was attached to uh, a pump. They, they opened up my, my lungs. My lung completely collapsed in, in this process. Uh, but there was also the issue of removing the fluid. So they, they sucked as much as they could out with needles and then they put me on this kind of drain, but the drain's blocked up. I was in a hospital that was incompetent to the level of not understanding my surgery. That's an intercostal catheter, is that right? I've no idea. I had one six weeks ago. Well, OK, probably was. 
The cleaner I learned, didn't I learned know. something, a medical the, term. The cleaner didn't know what to call it when she no, kicked, no, kicked it over. Pump. Yeah. I called it my briefcase. Yeah, well, it's that, yeah, I'm sure we're probably talking about the same thing. Yeah. Um, that surgery didn't really work, um, so I was probably getting infections. I got pneumonia during that time. I got transferred to another hospital. They repeated the operation. They put two pumps, two drains in me, um, and I continued to go downhill, but probably that was needed, and I eventually started to creep back up. And it was months later before I could even walk around my block. We've got an 800-metre block. I couldn't, I couldn't do that first up. I, barely all I could do to get out of bed and walk to the toilet. Mm. So... Anyway, that's physical, but <clears throat> I think that's affecting me emotionally as well. It's affecting me spiritually as well. And because I've been given no hope of a cure, effectively told, OK, Dave, your trajectory is just downhill to death. Mm. We don't know exactly how long, but don't look up. Mm. I'm thinking, what of all those beliefs that I've always had and, and proclaimed and taught to others? Is there a Jesus? Does God exist? Does he answer prayer? Will he heal me? Is there any reason to pray? Um, what if I die? Um, can I trust that my family will be okay? Is there really resurrection from the dead? I'm going through, and I use a big word, I'm going through an existential crisis. I'm going through that question of, do my theoretical beliefs measure up with reality? Flesh out. Yeah. Mm. And so I think the, that was a very profound and important experience to go through because it pushed me back to basics. People encouraged me, people wrote to me, people visited and prayed with me and you know, looked at parts of scripture. I went back and read a book that was really significant when I became a Christian early on called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Just a, I couldn't cope with anything heavy. I, I just wanted someone to tell me, yeah, it is true and you're not making it up and now that you have to trust God because you are dying, mm. know that you can. Mm. Mm. Um, and t- to be honest... I think it was helpful for people around me to see that I had to go through that as well because yeah. we can put ministers on pedestals and, and um, assume that... You know, You've got your life together. Yeah, they've got life together, but you don't doubt. No. You, know, you don't struggle. Yeah. Uh, you've got full confidence. In fact, you think the whole idea of any other belief is absolutely ridiculous. You, um, and this made me very vulnerable and helped others to see that that's okay. Someone... Um shared with me, uh, it must be 20 years ago, um, something that I've always treasured and that in a crisis and you're dealing with your own mortality and dealing with issues with people, this person said to me, uh, the best of men are men at best. And I found that so true. And I found that so, um, interestingly, comforting to know that I'm only a man with all my failings and all my weaknesses and there's nothing I can ever do, you know, to change that. Yeah. And that it's all grace. Absolutely. And you experience that. Yeah. Because when I read this book, you know, um, you can read it two ways. You can read it as a biography of of yourself, but you you can read it in a way that you've got intention in this book. And can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, the, um, let me tell you a little bit about the origin of the book. I, um, I've been a preacher for however many years, right, and all of a sudden I, I'm shut up. And uh, I, I'd go along to church, but I couldn't sit. Like, we met in a school gym at the time, and I couldn't sit 
with other people because I needed to stay away from anybody who might have a cough or a splutter. And even at morning tea time, I'd go and sit myself off in a corner. And this lady, a lovely lady, came up to me one day and she said, Dave, I want to encourage you to write. Um, we, need, we need to hear from you. We, we're interested in how you're going, in, in, in your reflections, um, in thinking about a whole bunch of things. And so that started me blogging. And um, it also started me reading uh, what other people were going through. And I read one day of a, a woman, um, she said... The heading of her blog post was from NED, no evidence of disease, to no hope in less than two weeks. Mm. Now that still doesn't really kind of compute for me, but the big thing that it, it kind of summarised is the view that so many people out there have, and that is that, that the ultimate hope is cure. That's the ultimate hope. So you know, if we can cure cancer then, right, then we've conquered the world, haven't we? Mm. If we can cure cancer, no we haven't, because there'll be something else that replaces it. Um, and the thing that we haven't conquered and the thing that personally we've still got to face is our own mortality. And whilst I'd been diagnosed with a terminal illness, it was like a duh realisation to know that I hadn't suddenly got a terminal illness, I'd already had one. Mm. It's called life. Mm. We're born to die. And that's something that you can't talk about. That's something that people ignore. And if in this time when people are really open to, to some of the most profound and significant questions they will ever ask, they are only asking to the point of death, um, then they're short, they're, they're, they're actually selling themselves short, they're, they're missing out and they still don't have a real hope. Yeah. And so I thought, well, if God gives me the opportunity to convey out of this that there is a hope for the most hopeless human being in the most hopeless of situations uh, and being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, being given a, a short-term terminal diagnosis, kind of gave me a credibility to, to speak into that space, then I want people to hear that. And I uh, believe that you know, God has opened up great opportunities. Um, the book has proved to be something that can be given to other people. It's written with a person who's not a believer in mind, but it's been encouraging to Christians. And, um, and not just for people with cancer. I, I received a letter last year from a prison chaplain and had given a copy to a guy who was in jail quite literally for the rest of his life, a guy who um, had committed some very bad crimes uh, and... He, he read through this and it, it could have been written for him as hope beyond freedom because he had no hope of freedom. And, and for a lot of people in jail, you'd say, well, that's the ultimate thing you're looking for, your release, right? But he knew that there was no, no release. There was no possibility of parole. And yet for him, it opened up his world to see that in eternity, God has made it possible for him to have real freedom, which in turn gives you freedom now to live. Uh, and Paul knows that, doesn't he, as he writes from in jail. And I think I can testify to that as writing with, with a, you know, a ticking bomb inside me. I can write in confident hope because I know what Jesus has done. And so I'm, I'm happy to spruik the book heaps because it, God has been using it um, to see, to make an impact in people's lives. And I just thank him for that. Um, 
And yeah. I know the book, the book I've, I think you gave me a dozen at the time, and I've passed them on since. And, and for those who have read them, seriously, have responded to it and say, this is a good read and a good um, wake-up in many ways. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. I, um, I had the, what turned out to be... I was, I've been involved in four funerals in a two-week period, um, about a month back, or a bit more than a month now. One of them was my mother-in-law, and that was, that was sad but also joyful. Uh, and one of them was I was invited to speak at the mother of friends of mine who... the Two friends, they're, they're both married now to different people with their, their own kids, but I met them as university students when I arrived in Canberra. Um, they were involved in the group for the year. I took the group away on a mission. I got everybody sharing their testimony at the mission and realised that neither of these two were Christian. Okay. They had no idea what the gospel was. Right. When I asked them to distill the most important thing that they had to say to people, they just didn't know where to go. So we, we worked on the gospel. They were both converted. Um, but their mother, who was an occasional churchgoer, um, resisted their involvement. In fact, um, one of them used to pretend she was going off to study at university when she was actually coming to church. Um, but we've, we've kind of um, been praying for this woman. Um, last year, and, and I've now gone into a church where one of them is, and, uh, and we put on a dinner one night based on this theme of Hope Beyond Cure, and Andre's his name, he... he invited his mother and his father to come, and for the first time ever, they both came. They came to the dinner, but his mum left before I spoke. And so Andre's he's devastated. I finally got my parents. She left because she was complaining of a stomachache, right? And he's thinking, yeah, nice excuse, right? So she's off in the bathroom, and then not only that, but she calls her husband to leave before the talk to take her home. Now, within a week, she's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, that's why she had the stomach ache. There was no, no, no pretense here. But because they'd invited her, she was willing to do two things. That is to meet up with me, because she'd missed out on the talk, and to accept this book. And I met with her a number of times. Anyway, she died a, a couple of months ago of the cancer. Um, and Andre gave me her copy of the book to have a look at and invited me to speak at the funeral. And it, it was extraordinary to open this book that... A, she had scribbled all through it, right? So in the early chapters, it's question, 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 questions. But you could see her change through the book. So as we're getting on into the latter chapters that are looking at the Bible, she's highlighting Bible verses. She's writing in extra Bible verses. And joy of joys, in the last chapter, I've got a section where there's a prayer of response to become a Christian. Different to all the other scribbles right through, there's a fluorescent highlight pen circling all around it and it was a huge joy now this this woman i'm like i learned all these things about her at the funeral i never knew that she was a personal nurse nurse to winston churchill that she was a personal nurse on um what's his name onassis's private yacht um and that she was a a maniac on the roads and drive her own old-fashioned porsche um and a whole bunch of other really quirky things but the, the great joy was to be able to share that she's somebody who came to faith in Jesus. And that's God's work. Yeah. Um, that's, that's God's well, that's work. what I read the intention of this book is. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, it reaches people who, who wrestle with those questions in life. Yeah. And, um, and of course the Bible's got the answer to it, but this is a great asset to have, I think, in sharing. Dave, um, it's four years since you've been diagnosed. Just about. Just about. Mm. In 20 words, 
sum it up? I can do it in one. Okay. Chemotherapy. <laughs> um, <It's> most encouraging. <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit of an extraordinary patient in that I'm, I'm still on chemotherapy. So every three weeks. And yeah. Yeah, my dad was on a cycle that was only six treatments. Um, I don't know my number, somewhere between 60 and 70. Yeah. But I'm not unique, but I'm in a very, very minute, minuscule group. And I can't get advice now from my doctors or nurses as to what to expect because they say, we don't know. Right. People don't do what you've been doing. But they say, stick with it. Um, that's, fr- you know, the pious answer would be to say Jesus or God yeah, yeah, or something yeah. like that. But, but that really is the thing that, that most shapes. The, the kind of dynamic of my life. So around that, I seek to live. I, I seek to you know, love and enjoy my family. I seek to, um, to teach the word and share the gospel and encourage our church. Uh, I, I seek to not take for granted some of the little joys. Um, two years later, I, I caught a wave um, in the surf and it was absolutely exhilarating. I, I broke into tears. I was just body surfing, but I and I was it nearly killed me because I've got very small lung capacity now. But to think that God had enabled me to do that again, and it was just wow. And little things, like I, I, I had a grandson born last Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got That's I got to give him a cuddle. Yes, he fell asleep on me. <laughs> I mean, he looks like he's been squashed into a very confined space, but, you know, that, just those things, I think, God, thank you so much for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Uh, before I throw it into questions, mm. um, is Darwin still on the radar? Darwin is on the radar. Ah. In fact, you can see it if you look on a map of Australia. Um, <laughs> the, the need is just as great there, and I'm praying that someone will rise up to reach that need. Uh, I don't know that it will be us. Um, one of the things that I'm conscious of is just how physically frail I become through the chemo. And I think that um, the heat and humidity of Darwin would be very torturous. Um, and don't know that, it, that I'm up for it. But um, if any of you want to rise to the challenge, I can point you in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. very needy area, but, but don't be romantic about it. It's, no. it's tough going and Many Christians have, have kind of uh, not stumbled and fall, fallen in their faith, but just found it too hard. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. I think it's appropriate that um, we give time for questions, not only relating to what Dave has just shared about his health, but also about the talks that you've heard this morning and this afternoon. Uh, yeah. There was an... Um, SMS number in your program. I don't know whether anyone's done that. It's my number, would you believe it? <laughs> Got any texts? No texts. Okay, well. So it'll have to be from the floor. Are there any questions? It's probably quicker to do it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is everyone yes. hear the question? Do I get opportunities to witness uh, to my medical um, uh, practitioners? Yeah, I do. Uh, the, 
the oncologist who's been supervising my treatment from day one, I've talked with him and he's, uh, he's made it very clear that he's an atheist uh, and that he doesn't uh, believe that God has anything to do with what I've been going through. But he's also very conscious of the fact that, that, uh, that it's very real to me, that God is very real to me, that I pray, that I've had confidence in him. And one of the things I've had to be careful, and I'm, I'm very, I try and be very careful on this, is to not convey that, that my God is the God of the inexplicable. So I'm, I'm saying to him that God can work through chemo, God can work through radiation, God can work through surgery, God, um, God is the one who's given us these talents and abilities to invent these drugs and do all of these things and so on. And so I acknowledge and thank God for the way that my treatment has gone independently of how exactly it has been brought about. And, um, because the danger of, of the view that if you can't explain something, then that's God, is that as soon as you then work out a way to explain it, you don't need God anymore. And I think that's been an apologetic that has um, been destructive for Christian witness um, over the years. Uh, I, I haven't um, had the experience of of one of my medical people coming to Christ or, or choosing to come to church because of it. I've been able to give books to, to most of the people. But there, there's one story I would share because it's, it, it absolutely blew me away. Um, there's a physiotherapist um, who's a Christian who gave um, a whole bunch of my books uh, to the, the senior sister at the, at the Catholic hospice in Canberra. Um, many of the people that they get going through there um, are people who've, who've been Catholic sisters and nuns. Um, they've had some priests. Uh, and um, she wrote to me about how a number of nuns uh, who had feared dying because they didn't know whether they would be accepted by God had actually been help to discover grace and I'm thinking wow evangelising nuns um, that's extraordinary and I've never met any of those people but it was a lovely story to hear back um, and I have um, uh, two of the two of the registrars um, have expressed a real interest in exploring things um, both Indian uh, and so I'm I've got email contact there and I'm hoping to stay in touch with them. I've also met um, a couple of Christian oncologists through this and it's, they've both been very gracious in giving me their phone numbers and saying, if you just want to talk. Because um, my guy is Mr Doom and Gloom. He, he's, uh, he's an Asian guy who's very matter-of-fact and uh, he's, he's a pessimist realist, I would say. And I thank God for that because he's not going to pretend anything. Um, whereas these other fellows are a little bit more socially um, able and personally encouraging. <laughs> yeah. One day I volunteered to, to do a, a subject for medical students on bedside manner and pastoral <laughs> care. Yeah. 
No, I'm not, but I'm eligible. Um, uh, with my particular genetic mutation, the UP mutation, there's been a drug developed by Pfizer which was available before I was uh, diagnosed. It's called crizotinib. Um, I missed out on the ability to go on the trial because I'd already started on chemo. Uh, the oncologist in Melbourne, who's a world leader on my mutation, said a really strange thing to me. He said, no, we shouldn't do surgery because we need to keep the tumour in you because it makes you eligible for a trial. <laughs> now, that's very counterintuitive, but I understand what he's saying because the trials are only interested in people with something measurable. Otherwise, you've got no data coming forward. Um, so I'm not currently eligible for any trials because there's no measurable tumour. Um, but this particular drug that I could have been eligible for, crizotinib, which cost $90,000 a year, um, has, we thank God, as of the 1st of July this year, been put on the PBS and is now $38 a month. Um, there's a second and third generation of drugs that are also targeted. The problem with crizotinib is it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, and so the, the typical um, metastatic response is brain tumours. But the next generation of drugs, at least two of them, are phenomenal at, at just... Um, um, medically removing brain tumours. Uh, I've got one friend in Brisbane who had 14 brain tumours through crizotinib. He has none now um, on electinib. And that's now being... Um, now they're doing trials that are matching up um, immunotherapy drugs with the targeted uh, drugs and, and testing the impact of that. So... It's extraordinary, the, the dynamic speed with which the medical advances are taking place. And, and I bear witness to what a doctor said to me really early was the longer we can keep you alive, the more options there will be to keep you alive. And to have gone through one, two phenomenal kind of leaps in medical advance in my four years, um, even though they're not all approved yet, um, is just extraordinary. Can I just pick up on that just to say something more broadly about the way we care for each other in church? Um, I, th I think I've had the experience of being an, an acute kind of crisis patient and transitioned into being a long-term chronic patient. I think my experience is that as churches we're really good at helping in the acute crisis situation. There's always people rising up, bang, 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 you know, and it's marvellous. As churches we... We respond brilliantly, but we're not so good in the long-term ongoing crisis care, sorry, chronic care. Um, and partly it's because many of, of the people who go through chronic issues are out of sight and out of mind. You know, they can't come to church because of their bad back. They can't get out of bed because of their chronic fatigue. Their, their cancer is now old news. It, it's not, you know, immediate. And, to be fair, there's been a new crisis that's come in and taken the front seat. 
um, and then another one replaces that. And I don't think I'd got that as a pastor, but I started to get that as a congregation member and patient. Mm. And so if we can put our mind to, to that kind of long-term care, and I think there's something in the list of widows in 1 Timothy that may have that in mind. Because you could easily forget the need of the widow. Um, but you put them on a list, you get yourself organised, you think about what you're doing. I don't know exactly what the list was or what flowed from it, but um, we know that, that Paul was not uh, averse to planning and being organised and you know the way he took up the collection and things like that. He wanted there to be discipline about it. So... I think as churches, that's a, that's a challenge area for us to think about chronic care um, and to share it around because uh, you asked about the impact on family. Mm. One of the hard things is I think if, if Fiona was in a, in a kind of sad, honest moment, she'd say, well, you, you get all the attention, but people aren't asking how I'm going. You know, you're the famous cancer patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just happen to be the one who always looks after you. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, and the, and the cancer council's relay for life, I think, is is a positive thing in that regard. In that they they um the, the, their first lap always is a lap for not only survivors but carers, and it's a great joy for for me to do that lap wearing a survivor badge, but for my wife and all my kids and my grandkids and whatever to wear a carer's sash, uh, and I I think they're the people who. To do the, the lap of honour, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Fiona says it's all right for you because you know you, you'll end up in heaven, but we'll have to we'll have to grieve for you for the rest yeah, yeah. of our lives. And yeah, James. For, for me, Jesus' teaching about it's so hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven uh, was no more clearly seen for me than at the Australian Institute of Sport and in the Brumbies Rugby Super Team. Um, here are people who need nothing. They have the world at their feet. They're treated like gods in their own community. The, the nature of successful sports people in our country is that we give them the status of gods. And so it's, it's very hard for them to see the need for God. It's, a, it's something that um, I, I continually feel challenged by because it, it's one thing for me to say to a person who's at rock bottom um, in the chemo chair beside me that there's hope um, and another thing to say a person who hopefully will be holding up the World Cup in three weeks' time that you need hope. Um, but, you know, all... Things go wrong in people's lives and, and those kind of minor to major tragedies um, I see as opportunities as well. Um, and most of my opportunities that have been enduring in the Brumbies sports chaplaincy ministry have come about through tragedy of some sort. A player killed in South Africa. Um, they came off the plane, I met them 
at the airport. The coach says to me, a couple of players have said they wouldn't mind getting together to pray tomorrow. I have this hunch, really, I think a God-given hunch that I need to be well prepared for this because it might just be a little more than a couple of players. Every player bar two, all management and all coaching staff came, 70 people, and I had the opportunity to talk about life and death and Jesus and resurrection and to pray and to help them grieve and to offer to catch up with people and then was able to catch up with people. So um, that sad, very, very sad um, for the family and the friends, but that's the opportunity that God gave for me to make inroads in people's lives and, yeah, many stories analogous to that. There's a question here. Can we make that the last one? Yeah, look, one thing I've learnt is um, I, I took the funeral of a, of a friend a number of years back uh, and she was, she was diagnosed um, with melanoma on my mother's birthday, so that was the 7th of January. She died uh, on my sister's birthday, that was 24th of February. Six weeks, bang. And what I failed to do, and I really... Yeah, it was so easy for me to have thought about it. I failed to jot down a note of when she was diagnosed and when she died. Mm. And the next year came around and I didn't even think to send a card to her husband or ring him up or anything like that on the 24th of February uh, or to make mention of the 7th of January. Mm. And he was quite upset. Now... In one sense, he had no reason to expect that I would be looking out for his calendar and for some people that, that, that's not a big deal. But for him it was. And I thought, boy, with Eleanor it was so easy. You know, it was on two members of my family's birthdays. And so what I do now um, is I record death dates in my electronic phone calendar. And... I don't always send messages or whatever to everybody and I won't necessarily do it forever, but it helps me to remember them, not simply on that day, but that the family who are left behind are hurting. And uh, I mentioned last night that... that um, well, I, I don't think I did say this, but the day in which I decided to write this book, it, it was at a funeral for a friend, uh, a friend um, by the name of Bronwyn Chin, her husband's the AFS National Director in Australia and Bronwyn and Richard were in a Bible study I'd, I'd read, run when they were in first year at uni and I'd, I'd stayed in touch with them and Bronwyn and I became kind of um, cancer buddies. We were writing to each other. Um, but Bronwyn died on Easter Sunday um, and the thing about dying on Easter Sunday and I'd had a friend who died on Good Friday of cancer a few years before is there are two anniversaries so every Easter Sunday Richard's going to remember the death of Bronwyn mm. 
Every 29th of March, he's going to remember the death of Bronwyn. Every Mother's Day, the family are going to remember the death of Bronwyn. Every, and, and you just start to think a little bit and you'll realise that through, through the year, through their situations and circumstances, things are going to be difficult for people. Um, and I'm just saying that as an illustration of just a little bit of thought can go a long way um, for those who are left behind and continuing to struggle. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think you can agree with me that it's been a pleasure and a blessing, really, to have Dave come over and share with us how God has shaped your life and that you, in turn, have um, been willing to um, take advantage of that and share that in, in lots of practical ways. You know, through the, the talks on Philippians, but also your personal journey, I think it's been a blessing for us and we trust that... Um, We'll respond to that, you know, that um, we'll continue on in our Christian ministry rejoicing because of what we have. So um, we thank God for you, Dave.